Our text today is Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. This is the word of the Lord. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. We ask now as we, we study it together that you impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our lips and that we carry it everywhere with us where we go. We pray this in the mighty name of your son. Amen. It's so good to see everybody. It's going to be almost 70 at the end of this week. It is almost spring. I'm excited. Well, I guess technically it is spring, but it almost feels like it's spring. So this will be our last week in Matthew for a couple weeks. As we enter into Holy Week, starting on Palm Sunday next week, we'll, we'll take a slight shift, and then we will rejoin after Easter back in the book of Matthew. But today we're going to wrap up chapter 9, and it's just three verses, and then that will set us up as we talk about the disciples and and them being sent, moving chapter 10 forward. But these three verses bridge, they bridge, they make a bridge between Jesus' public ministry, which we have been studying and following so far, to the training and the sending of His disciples. Because up until this point, the disciples have been observers, they've been seeing and watching and following But we're about to see they're about to become doers. Jesus is going to teach them and send them to go out and take action for the kingdom of God. And he's going to show them and he's going to show us that we're not just to be hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. We are called to go out and spread the gospel, to to apply what we believe to our lives as Christians. And I did have a little chuckle as I was writing this and reading and studying for this. Because you you probably know that modern Bible translations have headers on sections, which did not exist in the Greek and Hebrew. There weren't even chapter numbers. In some of the Greek, there there wasn't even punctuation. But, But the headers were put there by Bible translators to help us stay organized and understand what we're going to read. And the header for the ESV says, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, which made me chuckle because when I go out to pretty much anywhere now, you go to a store, you go to a restaurant, I can feel this. The laborers seem to be few. And while the excuses of COVID stand a few years later say that they're staffing problems, I just kind of chuckle every time I go places because it looks like the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. But the reality is the reason the laborers are few is because labor requires hard work. We have built a culture which doesn't really love hard work. So I looked at the dictionary definition of labor just out of curiosity, and it defines labor as work especially physical work, hard work that requires great effort, work that requires difficulty. See, we live in a world of ease, and hard work and hard labor is something that's actually kind of frowned upon. It's something that many people look to avoid. We've actually built a whole culture around the idea of ease and automation and making our lives so much easier uh, to, to the point where we've outsourced a majority of our lives, and then people go into a full panic when they think they can't buy toilet paper. And then we wonder why is there a whole generation of people that lacks grit. But the reality is labor and hard work are are what make grit. They're what make people more resilient. 
Because there's always so much work to get done, isn't there? But the people who want to work hard, even now, appear to be few. And like the preacher told us in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun in the first century, and there is nothing new under the sun in the 21st century. Meaningful work, labor, is never easy work. Think about childbirth. What do we refer to when a woman is giving birth to a baby? It is labor. It is hard work. But it is hard work that provides one of the most meaningful things that anyone can ever experience. I mean, only a woman can give birth. You know that. Men are part of the process. We can explain this to you later afterwards if you're not sure how it all works out. But it's only women can give birth because they are the only ones that have a womb. But it is referred to as labor because it is hard work. And so I just want you to think about that that laboring as hard work, keep that in the back of your mind as we prepare for the labor that is going to be set in front of all of us. So if you remember last week, we ended our portion with Jesus going out and teaching, proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and healing. And he was able to heal every disease and every affliction. It doesn't mean he healed every disease and every affliction, but he was able to heal every disease and every affliction. He was out spreading and sharing the gospel and his life and teaching in the synagogues and bringing people the good news. And we know that everywhere that Jesus went, that Jesus went, big crowds followed him. I think if there had been headlines in newspapers, Jesus probably would have made page one day after day after day. Right? He, he, would have, he would have hit to the top of page one. Look what Jesus did today. Healed the blind man. Pissed off the Pharisees. <laughs> whatever, whatever the thing happened to be. And you can imagine that people are curious. That, that, that they were excited. And, and some were probably angry. There's all of these emotions that go along with these big crowds that have been following Jesus. Because there's this man who is speaking with authority. Who is, who is staking a claim. Who is... God. And so we've seen this, and we've discussed this as we look at Jesus' miracles, these large crowds of people. But it's here, it's among his healing, among his teaching, and being followed by all of these people that we actually get a glimpse into his motivation. It's that idea of the, sometimes the small things in the text are easy to, to gloss over when they're really big things. Verse 36 again, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we don't know how he saw the crowds. Was he on a hill looking down? Was he just turning around? Or is it just the fact that you've got this ginormous group of people and you know because you can see them, because everywhere you go, they follow you? But it doesn't actually really matter the manner in which Jesus saw the crowds. It's a constant band of people that is always there, a throng of people that is always following him. So, of course, Jesus obviously sees them because they're always there. But it's more than just being able to see them. Everybody can see them. If you and I were walking around Capernaum when these things were taking place, we would have been able to see them as well because they're always following Jesus. But Jesus, being God, doesn't just see them. He sees them. You know what I mean by that? Seeing with the eyes, and there's seeing with the eyes. This is why highly inflected languages like Greek can give us better detail with more words. We have a word for seeing. 
But the idea is that, that he's not just seeing them physically, but he's seeing them because Jesus can see their hearts. He can see their souls. He can see our hearts, our souls. He knows your deepest thoughts. So he sees them, and what happens? He really sees them. He has compassion on them. And why? Because they're harassed and helpless. They were sheep without a shepherd. There's actually a lot to unpack just in this one little verse. But I want to talk about sheep first and the role of the shepherd, and I want to come back to their harassment and helplessness and God's compassion. Most of you know we have goats. People tell me all the time goats are dumb. That is a lie. Goats are not dumb. Goats are smart, and they're thick-headed, and they're hilarious. Sheep, on the other hand, are dumb. Ricky, our goat, got out of the pen the other day. Ricky is hilarious. If you haven't been to the house to spend time with Ricky, you should come just to hang out with Ricky. And so Ricky does goat parkour, and so he probably did a little bit of goat parkour as he's bouncing off of things. And he decided, because he had gotten out, to run back to his home, which is the goat pen. But he didn't go the normal traditional road. He knew where the home was. He jumped on top of the bunny hutch and then into the chicken coop and then into the goat pen, which interestingly enough, we found out that the bunny hutch can hold a Nubian goat's weight, uh, interestingly enough, distributed on the top of it. It's amazing how a large animal can jump onto small things. But he got there back himself. He knew where home was. He knew where the safety of his home was. But sheep, sheep on the other hand, are dumb. And they don't know simple things like where my home is. You see, without oversight and protection, sheep are vulnerable to stupidity and predators. Now, since I am not a herder of physical sheep, just spiritual sheep, be grateful I don't have to shear wool off of any of you. Um, I don't have a lot of dumb sheep stories. So, thanks to the internet, I looked up dumb sheep stories. And thanks to Google, here's the gem that I found. News story, Istanbul, Turkey. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths. Bye. Plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in Van Province near Iran, but broke that fall of another 1,100 animals who survived. The f- <laughs> shouldn't laugh at this. But the 400 who died broke the fall of the 1,100 other ones that jumped out. That's a lot of sheep. Broke the fall of another 1,100 animals who survived, newspaper reports said yesterday. Shepherds from the Isler village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The radical daily said the loss to local farmers was $74,000. What did the shepherds go do? They went and had breakfast. And while they had breakfast, 1,500 sheep jumped off a cliff. (laughs) Bye! (laughs) I did write that in my notes. It says, bye! (laughs) And that's it. One sheep was the leader, and the rest followed, and they went off the cliff. Now, it's not funny, but it is funny. But the reality is, sheep aren't like lemmings. They are not prone to suicide. They are, in general, not particularly suicidal animals. There are not a lot of reports of mass sheep suicide. There there just aren't. But here it is, 400 dead off a cliff and another 1,100 whose falls were broken by the 400. And why is this? Because they're really dumb. They're just so, so dumb. 
The sheep commit to a sheep leader. And wherever that sheep leader goes, the rest of the flock follows. This is why we have the metaphor of sheep when people blindly follow a leader. If you have a dumb leader, a sheep, leading dumb animals, the other sheep, what happens? Bye! They end up off the cliff. That's why some people have even used the term sheeple, you've probably heard that, for, for people who blindly follow bad leaders. We see this all the time in our world. We see sheep, all kinds of sheep, who follow other sheep blindly, and then they end up falling off the cliff. And, and this is very pre, uh, prevalent in our political 24-hour news cycle. So much of this we saw between 20 and, and 2021, and I'm not talking about masks and shots or any of that at all. I'm talking about blind adherence to anything without a guide. Blind adherence to, to, to another sheep because I'm just going to follow that sheep no matter what because they're going that direction. And the challenge is it's, it's dangerous ground because it leads to dangerous results. And this is actually how Jesus is viewing this crowd. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're helpless. You see, without a shepherd, they're going to end up following some other sheep. And who knows? That leader might lead them off the edge of a cliff. But it, 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 it's just so much deeper because we lose so much depth when we only read the Bible in English. Because the word harassed means more than harassed. Are we allowed to say harassed anymore? Isn't it harassment? I think there's new words. That was a long time ago. We don't even know what the new words for the new words are. But harass doesn't just mean like harassment like we think of harassment today. It actually means, the Greek word for this means to be flayed, to be torn apart. You guys know what flaying is. We think about animals. That's what would happen to sheep with a predator. If no one was to protect the sheep and there was a predator, these sheep would be flayed. They would be torn apart. They would be mangled, just like falling off the cliff. I would imagine they were pretty mangled. Coyotes are a primary predator of sheep. And coyotes don't do nice things to the sheep that they want to kill. They mangle them and they tear them up. See, this is the reason that Jesus uses that word, because what's the point? The Bible uses that word. What's the point? The point is... Without direction, without a shepherd, you will be left torn and destroyed and flayed. Without a shepherd, all of these people following Jesus will be left defenseless. And eventually, they'll be mangled. Because what's that cause? Well, we all know it's sin. Just like the coyote is a predator of the sheep, sin is a predator in the hearts of the believers and the unbelievers all the people. Genesis 4.17. It's not the right verse. That's not the one I meant to type in there. So we're just, but Romans 7.15.17. 17, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Those are Paul's words when he's talking about the struggle of sin in, in Romans chapter 7. That's such a great, great chapter of Romans. Let me see if I can find this one in Genesis that I meant to put in here and not. I probably just had dyslexia when I put it in the notes. But sin affects everything. It began at the fall. Just as one man sinned and it's imputed on all of us, one man comes and saves all of us. 
But we need that man. We need that shepherd. And so Jesus looks out over this great crowd, and what does he feel? What does he feel when he sees these helpless and harassed, soon-to-be-flayed sheep? He feels compassion. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd, about to be destroyed by sin, the, the, the cliff that they're going to fall off. They're, they're utterly helpless because they cannot do it alone. If they try, they're going to follow somebody. Everybody follows somebody. Everybody worships something. It matters who you follow and what you worship. But if they don't know Jesus, their sinful hearts are going to have them blindly following the wrong person and disastrous results are going to happen. And of course, we are no different. Left to our own devices, we all follow the wrong people and the wrong things. I guarantee everybody here has done that at some point in their life. That's what happens when we live in a place where we rationalize our behavior. We rationalize sinful behavior. We have cultural rationalizations of behavior because we've moved into this feelings-based world, right? And the devil loves this. The devil loves a place because he can, this place because he can play off of our feelings. And then he can have us rationalize behavior that's not appropriate because we feel like we want to do it. And if we reward it socially, reward it culturally, what happens? We, we do it more. And we do it more. And then eventually we fall off the cliff. We all get to that cliff edge and we get close to falling off or we do fall off. Fall off. And then we follow that wrong leader. We say, bye as we fall to our splat at the bottom. So this is what Jesus is responding to with compassion. With compassion, which is really, when you think about it, Jesus' whole mission. His whole mission is about compassion. Saving us from our sin is about compassion. Teaching us to love our enemy is about compassion. In just two weeks, we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is His ultimate compassion. Going to die for us on the cross on Good Friday, and then coming back as prophesied, showing us that He is who He said He is. It's God's greatest compassion ever, ever. the ultimate compassion, dying for our sins, saving us from sin even though we were enemies of God. But see, his compassion is also an indictment. His, his compassion is an indictment on the leaders of the day who are supposed to be leading these people. By saying that they are sheep without a shepherd, he is indicting the Pharisees and indicting the Jews and saying, you haven't led these people. Ezekiel 34, 2 through 6. It's a day of Ezekiel for us. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Doesn't that ring true now in today's world? You see, the fact is, sheep need a good shepherd. 
Sheep need a good shepherd who has compassion on his sheep. He cares for them. He loves them. He protects them. You see, the Jews weren't shepherding their people. And pagans, most certainly, weren't shepherding their people. And there's no difference today. There are so many people walking around who are lost and have no guidance and have no shepherd. But they're following somebody or something. You see, they fall into the trap, and we've all done this, of the next great thing, the next great motivational speaker, the next great deal, the, the, I'm going to change my Facebook status too. When ultimately all of those things just edge us closer and closer and closer to the cliff's edge. But then comes Christ, compassionate. He's, he's shown compassion. He's healed physical infirmities of people, but he's shown his compassion in a greater way by forgiving them of their sin, by healing them spiritually, not just physically. Jesus has compassion on all people. He has compassion on the marginalized. He has compassion on the helpless. He has compassion on those that appear hopeless to the world. The people that the world has given up on, Jesus has compassion on them. And Christianity is the only religion in the world that shows compassion in this manner and shows compassion to those who do not believe what it believes. There is no other theology, no other religious doctrine that has compassion for the stranger and the enemy because it's abnormal to have compassion for your enemies when you have a hard and sinful heart. I like this. G. Campbell Morgan wrote about this on this passage. He said, there is no reason in man that God should save. The need is born of his own compassion. No man has any claim upon God. Why then should men be cared for? Why should they not become the prey of the ravening wolf, having wandered from the fold? It has been said that the great work of the redemption was the outcome of a passion for the righteousness and the holiness of God. That Jesus must come and teach and live and suffer and die because God is righteous and holy. I do not so read the story. God could have met every demand of His righteousness and holiness by handing men over to the doom they had brought upon themselves. Truth. But deepest in the being of God, holding in its great uh, energizing might, both holiness and righteousness is love and compassion. God said, according to Hosea, how shall I give up thee, Ephraim? It is out of the love which inspired the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided. It's all love. It's all compassion. It, it, it's incredible. We, we, we don't deserve any of it. That's why it's so important not to lose sight of our hearts. It can sound like a one-trick pony when the pastor's like, sin, sin, sin. But being aware of your sin makes you aware of God's great mercy and great compassion because our God is a God of love and compassion. So much so that He came as a human to feel our pain, to experience our life, to suffer as we suffer, to die in the most horribly painful way possible, to show His great compassion on us, to die in our place for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, and we are His sheep. Now, I think, I'll speak for most of you, us type A kind of people, we can struggle with this analogy sometimes because we don't really want to be sheep. We want to be, I don't even know, stronger than sheep. 
sheepdogs. That's because we want to believe that we're self-sufficient and that we're tough and we can push through anything. We just got to grin and bear it a little bit harder and double down the effort, pull up our bootstraps and rock and roll. But the reality is we do have to do those things, but we're not doing them alone. We have to do those things from the mindset of meekness as a sheep, as someone who is lost, being aware that we can follow the wrong leader. If we let sin and our desires to dictate our hearts, we move closer to that edge of the cliff. So we want to be meek people. We want to be sheep because our strength actually comes from that, from following the good shepherd. Once we are aware of where we are dead in our own hearts, then we can joyously turn to the good shepherd who leads us down a path of righteousness and compassion and love. You see, that place of understanding our depravity and Christ's love and compassion is where we get to see the beauty, the beauty of Good Friday. Such an interesting day. We'll talk about this in a week or so, but... The day that Jesus was murdered, we call Good Friday. Because he is our good shepherd, laying down his life for his flock. Just like you parents would lay your life down for your child. If the car was going to hit the child or you, no one's going to let their kid get hit. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So it's from this place of compassion and love and care for the hopeless that Jesus calls his disciples to action. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he used this great farming analogy. Look, there's so much to harvest. The crop is great. It has been a banner year, but it takes work. Think about farming before commercialized farming. I've been reading books on farming, and I've been reading a lot of books on farming before commercialized farming, and things like grain, processing grain, getting it to the threshing floor, all of these things take incredible work. We have big machines that can do this automatically. They fly, they fly see a pilot of me. They track GPS routes on the ground, and they process, and it comes into these giant commercialized places. This is why we feed our chickens grain now, where people used to never feed chickens grain, because grain used to be valuable because it took a lot of work to harvest. It took a lot of work to harvest. So he uses this farming analogy and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but there's not enough people to deal with the crop. There's not enough laborers. Do you know what happens to a crop that you don't harvest? It withers. It goes bad. It gets destroyed, gone, money lost, food lost, an economy lost. So harvesting requires hard work, back-breaking work, out in the sun working until the work is done. It is actually, literally, labor. So what do you do when the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few? Give up hope? All is lost? Go home, forget about it? Burn it to the ground? Never. Never. Verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The imperative in that, in that sentence, the command is pray. Pray earnestly. And who do you pray to? The Lord of the harvest, to God. Pray 
to him to send out laborers to go out and labor so that we can, we can reap the harvest. The time for watching and observing is over. It is time to get out and do hard work. So pray to him and be prepared to work. We could all make this same petition today. And actually, honestly, we should. The workers are few. The harvest is plenty. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Christchurch, we are those laborers. And the harvest really is plentiful. Now, I know I've shared this many times before, but if it were up to me, I wouldn't live here in Denver at all. I'd be in Idaho or Montana or Kentucky. There would be some land. There'd be farm animals. There'd be a gun range, possibly a dirt strip for a Piper Cub. Could teach some tailwheel flying, a parsonage on there for the church. That would be my ideal. If I could write it, it would be great. A couple hundred acres, no problem. But that's not where God has us. Every time that we have explored our desire to boogie, God has entrenched our feet more and more here. Why? I can't speak for the Lord, but I can tell you that the harvest is plenty here in Denver. Now, you may not believe that when you look outside, but here's the proof. The insanity that we are surrounded by outside is proof that the harvest is plentiful. We are surrounded of, of stories of kids killing kids. Kristen read a story to me yesterday. It was tragic about a 14-year-old stabbing to death a 13-year-old. Here. Here. Uh, two, two, two nights ago, I read about shootings after shooting. Here. It's crazy. It's insane. We, we, can talk about, we can talk about body mutilations done by people who, to, to children who took a Hippocratic oath to not hurt. We can talk about babies that are murdered before they have an opportunity to breathe outside of the womb. This is insane. We live in crazy times. We have people rejecting basic moral standards while asking and demanding of you to, to, to accept immoral behavior as morality. But what is it really? We have people searching. We have people looking for meaning, people searching for truth. They're looking for purpose, and they're following sheep leaders who are leading them to the cliff. Everybody in the world is looking for the explanation of why and their purpose while we're on this big spinning egg-shaped thing. It's not flat, just in case you're wondering. And that's what causes people to follow the wrong leaders, that inch them closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. And there are so many lost sheep, and there are many that have jumped off of the cliff. Think about the song that I quoted last week, the hymn I quoted last week, Amazing Grace. I was once lost, but now am found. We were all lost, and thank God Jesus worked in our hearts to find us and to bring us home to Him. But there are so many lost people that are looking for the truth. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is where I actually think it can be really overwhelming for us. We are talking about living all of Christ for all of life, about building God's kingdom here and now. But look around the room. We're not a massive group of people. We haven't even filled the balcony up yet. <laughs> That'd be interesting for the people who listen online. They're like, when did they get a balcony? There's the mezzanine seats. 
we're not a huge group of people. We're a rowdy band of Christian misfits who love the Lord. So can this, can this group here, our little band of merry misfits, actually change the world? And I would tell you unequivocally, yes. Absolutely, yes. First, because God told us we could. He gave us the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He told you to do it, so obviously you can. God does not give you things that, are in, uh, that we are unable to do and unable to succeed at. But wait, there's more. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, uh, ask the Father in my name, he shall give it to you. Why? Because verse 17 following, these things I command to you so that you will love one another. You see, we go bear fruit, we go do these things, we go build God's kingdom because He commanded us to so that we will love one another, so that we will have compassion on one another, and yes, I believe because of that that our small church can change the world. I believe that we can bring the kingdom of God to earth. Now, sometimes our timelines are too short because maybe we don't see the results that we want in our lifetimes. Maybe we won't see the result in our kids' lifetimes. But that's not where we're building it. We're not building it just so that we see it. God willing, we will. But you see, we're building it so that our kids' kids, their kids' kids in the back, the real little ones, their kids' kids are building the world as well, closer to the kingdom of God. And the reality, too, is that tons of small groups of dedicated men and women have actually changed the world. Look at commandos. If you look at the Navy SEALs or the British SAS, look at what small targeted groups of commandos can do. I've been reading a book about the Rhodesian commandos. And they assisted in World War II, this, this small part of South Africa that, that at one point belonged to the Brits. And, and these, these SAS-trained Rhodesian commandos end up going and, and completing incredible tasks with very small bands of men. But you can go back even farther in time. What about Israel? What about Hanukkah? You guys might not know much about Hanukkah. It's not Jew Christmas. It's actually a celebration that a small band of Jewish warriors, the Maccabees, led by this man named Modest Yahu, recaptured the temple from the Assyrians and the Greeks against all odds. How many times in our history did small groups of men and women beat the odds because they had dedication in the Lord on their side? Look at the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, men who helped reform and restore the church to her original glory, to remove the heresies of the Catholic and the Eastern churches, many of whom were persecuted for their beliefs, martyred for their beliefs, but small groups. Luther wasn't winning any friends in the Roman Catholic Church, nailing his 95 theses, thesi, thesi, thesis, thesis, to the cathedral doors in Wittenberg. Small groups can have incredibly large impacts. And actually, if you think about it, it makes sense. I'm working on my PhD, and so soon I'll be able to do surgery because that will make me a doctor. So I've been thinking a lot about surgery lately. I guess we'll do it. Don't worry, it's fine. We'll do it in the van out after church if anybody needs anything done. Appendicitis, no big deal. Vern, you can help out, right? You got tourniquets in the car? Piece of cake, no problem. But just think about it. Think about it. If I was a surgeon, you, 
I probably don't want to use my butcher knife, chef knife, to do exacting spinal surgery on somebody, right? I flew with a spinal surgeon once and I asked him, I said, what makes a good spinal surgeon? He said, steady hands, and I don't think he was wrong. But think about if he was to do spinal surgery on, on, on this, this incredibly important part of your body that a small nick and a small tear can kill you, can leave you paralyzed. They use a small and precise, sharp surgical instrument to make small, precise cuts. You see, small groups can actually be more precise than large groups. And if you think about it, that's actually how we disciple. We interact with individuals. We have dinner with them. We socialize. We do that when we, we leave this space and we go out there. You see, changing the world isn't about being famous. It isn't about making a name for yourself. It isn't about getting more followers or getting the blue check verified thing. It, it, it's not even that people even know you're changing the world. It's actually about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy, about having compassion on the multitudes, especially having compassion on those that are without a shepherd. This morning, I had to buy some bread today. We had a late night last night, and I ran to King's to buy our bread. And I got cursed at and yelled at in the parking lot. I, I got out of the car, and I tapped my, the driver's door and the car next to me. I looked at the car. It was fine. I didn't notice the car was running. I was just thinking about coming to see you all. And as I was walking into King's, a very angry woman in her 20s came out and used some, some, some verbiage to express her displeasure, asking me, what were you ever doing? You can fill in other words. I said, I'm sorry. She said, you hit my car, and used some other words in there. Descriptive words. And I said, I'm really sorry. I didn't I, was there damage? I noticed I hit the door, whatever. And, Start getting really upset with me. And so immediately, like, what's the defense mechanism? You're like, listen, it wasn't even a scratch. Like, what are you doing? But that woman was obviously having a really bad day. So I had to remind myself to have compassion on her. And so I apologized and said, I didn't realize her car was running. And then she told me, well, you could see the exhaust coming out. And she's still cursing and yelling at me about this. So I apologized. And then she told me that was the only thing she wanted. And then put an expletive between, that was the only blank thing I wanted. And then drove off. How easy is it to snap back and be like, it's not even a big deal. Why are you making a mountain out of a molehill? Stop. Like, this is stupid. Like, we, we've all responded that way to people, but that's not compassion. I have no idea why she was having a crummy day. My guess is it's probably not because my door tapped her door. It's probably something bigger than that. Maybe it's a crummy week. How I respond to her in that moment says a lot about where my heart is in that moment. So we have to have compassion on the multitudes, even the people who respond to us in a terrible way. Because a lot of these people are folks without a shepherd. And I think, and I said this last night, for those that got the spoiler alert, but there's this tendency to romanticize sinners in the Bible in a way that we shouldn't romanticize them. I'm reading this incredible book on art, which is a sentence I never thought I would say even like three years ago. And I'm going to make it the recommendation of the church book for April. It's, it's out of this world. It's written by a Presbyterian pastor, and it, it, it's walking through all this beautiful biblical art, but talking about the beauty of art and giving history to all these things. And there's this, I think, is it Caravaggio? Is it the Italian painter? He painted this painting called The, the Calling of St. Matthew. So it's tax collectors kind of sitting around a table. It's really beautiful. It was early 1600s, late 1500s was painted. And... and He's sitting around a table with these other tax collectors, and, 
and what appears to be Jesus and another man are pointing, and they're calling Matthew away from, from these tax collectors. And, and so I want to read the quote from the book, but there's this tendency in all of us to romanticize this, to maybe even romanticize like Matthew was just waiting for Jesus to show up, like, yay, fool, I'm free for my sin. But that's not the truth. All of us, when we sin, we enjoy it. That's why we, we, we stay in it. And so we don't want to romanticize those things. And, and, and he says in the book, throughout the Gospels, Jesus met social outcasts with compassion and reserved some of his strongest language for those who regarded tax collectors and sinners as people beneath basic dignity of kindness. We dare not romanticize this part of Jesus' ministry by regarding those folks on the fringe as merely misunderstood. Oh, they're just misunderstood people. For many of them, the ways they lived their lives added pain upon pain to those who loved them. They chose self and the satisfaction of appetites at the cost of relationships and honor. They lived every day in the misery of the choices brought. Those who loved them lived in the sorrow of grieving, uh, the loss of a prodigal, which is one of the sorest kinds of grief because the prodigal is at the same time gone yet still here. I know this in my own life, tragically. It is important to remember this if we want to understand the way Jesus loved sinful people. He loved them knowing that their lives were riddled with problems. Jesus loves the sinner, us, knowing that our lives at times are riddled with problems. We are to love those in our world to have great compassion on them, even knowing that their lives are riddled with problems. And some of the problems are really, really devastatingly big. Those same people that Jesus was loving are here in our midst now. Some of them could be inside this room. There are definitely some of them outside of that door. <clears throat> you see, we have to love the sinful people the way Jesus loves us, the sinful people. And friends, that is labor. But that is also what discipleship is all about. And this is how small bands of Christian warriors, all y'all, change the world with one act of love at a time. But it can only be done, it can only be done if we are being led by our good shepherd. You see, Christ loves us in our total depravity. That's why he died on the cross for us, to save us from the penalty of our sin. But it's not just that, it's more than that. He, through our faith in him, sanctifies us and transforms us. And because of that, we then go into the world and sanctify it and transform it to bear our fruit, to shepherd the lost, to love them as we are loved. And it's labor, and it's hard work, and it's stressful at times, and it's wonderful. There's this visualization I can't shake. But I don't think I've ever met a mother who's had natural childbirth, who had long labor, that was mad about it. It's always this, like, empowering war story. You're sitting around and having a cocktail, and people are talking about their kids, and ah, 36 hours of childbirth to give birth to Bob. But it's a badge of honor, right? It, it, it's strength. We, we call it labor. What were they laboring for? Love, compassion for their child. It's mom bragging rights. It's like the ultimate bragging rights. And it was probably, I can't even imagine, because there's only two genders and I don't have a womb, it's probably incredibly hard work. Family. We have hard work ahead of us. And some of that hard work may be painful. And some of that hard work may be strenuous, but it will lead to great things. 
Christ did it with 12 disciples. He changed the world with 12 people. Why are we even worried? We don't care about big numbers, small numbers, anything in between here. It's about going out and fulfilling the mission of compassion that Jesus has given us. It's the reason that I made the financial plea that I did in last week's email. I want you to know that God has blessed us through your generosity. All of our operating expenses are covered. We don't have many, but we, we aren't in worry. It's really a blessing. We have not, we have not sought financial resources outside of our community here and our extended community. We have some folks that have supported us that are part of our community that aren't physically here, but they're people that love us and care about us. But we haven't reached out to any of the, like the church planting funding organizations. And we've done that on purpose to ensure our independence as the body of Christ and to never be tied to things that could lead us astray. Very careful about that. But we do lack financially in our ability to provide support to our greater community. To be able to go and be compassionate and love folks sometimes takes money. It's just the reality. And so that's why we tithe as a church part of the donations that we receive from you. And we tithe part of our personal income to the church as well. But if we want to be compassionate, benevolent people, if we want to be a church of action like the early church, then we have to pool our resources to do those things. There are other ways we can increase our, uh, our compassion as well. We need to look at those, and that's part of what we're going to speak about when we meet in the morning of the 16th, is where do we as the body want to go in the remainder of this year to care for the people outside of here? Because it's not just about in here. It has to be something that we take out there. You see, we can always increase the ways that we can be compassionate to others. But it's only because we have a good shepherd. It's only because we have someone that looked at the crowds and the multitudes and saw that they were helpless. See, when we realize our helplessness, this helplessness, helplessness, helplessness. When we realize our helplessness, then we can turn with humility and meekness to the only true help that we can get, the good shepherd. See, Jesus isn't going to lead us off the cliff. And if we follow Jesus' model, we, we follow the model that he's about to send the disciples on, we too will shepherd others and prevent them from falling off the cliff. But we do it one person at a time by loving them, by having compassion on them, and by, by helping them see the beauty of God's grace and praying that the Spirit will work inside them so that they can receive it. That's why we say, come as you are, but don't leave as you were. So I want you to think about these things as we leave this place and we prepare for Palm Sunday next week and we, we, we think about the triumphant entry of Jesus and we start thinking about the finished work, the finished work on the cross and His joyful resurrection and the fact that all of us are His laborers and the harvest is plentiful. There is so much wonderful work to be done. And there will be times where it will be frustrating for us. And that's where we bind together to strengthen one another as iron sharpens iron, to lift each other up, to build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So family, I would tell you to rejoice, to rejoice. There is much hard work to be done and the harvest truly will be glorious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the work that you've placed before us. Lord, we pray earnestly 
to be the laborers sent out into the harvest to bring your kingdom here. Lord, we ask that you fill our hearts with your compassion so that we may be compassionate people, understanding the deep, deep love you have for us, even though we were once enemies of yours. Allow us to go to others with that same compassion, especially if they are enemies of yours. May we be the light on the hill that transforms the world that we are in, but only through the grace and the mercy and the path of righteousness that you have laid out ahead of us. We pray this, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen.